my first cell phone when I was in college. It was a glorious Nokia brick. I think we got a picture up here. Anybody ever have a Nokia brick? A few of us old people. Um, I remember this well because I was like, I'm almost 40 now and I can look back and remember the Nokia brick. Some of you are like, what? That was a cell phone? Looks terrible. It was pretty terrible. But really, at the time, I thought I was so cool. I was going off to college and I had a cell phone, you know? And this phone had it all. You could talk or you could send 40 text messages before you were charged a dollar per text message. Um, I had 80 minutes of talk time per month before I was charged a dollar a minute after that. Um, it even had games. Well, it had one game, Snake. And it was just a little, <laughs> yes, yep. Snake, I played Snake like crazy. And I was like, I'm playing a game on my phone, which I carry in my pocket. This is so cool. And of course, it was like a brick in your pocket, you know? Um, yeah, a lot's changed in the 20 years since then. And your phone looks a lot different. Some of you are like, I wasn't even born 20 years ago. It's crazy me, to me to think about, though, that 20 years ago, I was in college. 20 years ago, I got my first cell phone. And really, this realization that I'm old now, that I'm 40, uh, has made me introspective about how I'm spending my life and what I want to do with my remaining time on this planet. And so, because I just take you guys along on whatever journey I'm on, personally, emotionally, spiritually, we kicked off a series about contentment. And our working thesis is that becoming like Jesus and becoming a person of love and finding contentment are the greatest treasures in life. If you spend your life on that, it's not been a wasted life. And so I started talking about how we can learn to be content. And in week one, I said that most people are becoming people by default, not design. And our default is towards anxiety and angst and apathy. And week two, last week, we talked about how we need to de develop spiritual indifference to let go of things like our desire for wealth and health and status. These are obstacles to contentment and becoming people of love. Now, this week, we're going to talk about generosity. Now, if the person sitting next to you just groaned a little bit, that's probably because they've been around church enough uh, to know that when a pastor talks about generosity, it's code for give more to the church. Um, generosity is certainly not less than giving a percentage of what you make to a local church. I think that's a good thing. Horizon needs people to give in order to continue operating. We couldn't do this if people didn't give. If, we, if you give, thank you. We wouldn't be here without you. If you don't give, may I suggest start small? But while generosity is certainly not less than giving to a local church, that's not the bulk of what we're going to talk about today. So you can breathe a little bit easy. Uh, that's not to say that it's going to be an easy conversation. But giving is, while maybe not less than giving to a local church, generosity is certainly much more than that. A few years ago, this picture went around on the Internet of this receipt. Anybody ever see this circulate online? Every few, you know, it comes back up. It goes viral again. But it was a picture of a receipt that a waiter shared to their social media, and it went viral. And here's what it says. It's kind of hard to read on here. But it says, um, I give God 10%. Why do you get 18%? Zero dollar tip. And then they signed it, Pastor Bell. I like how they wrote pastor. Like, just throw us all under the bus. Thanks for that. Um, giving at church doesn't excuse you from being generous in life. I don't know about you, but if I was an atheist or I was an agnostic and somebody left me this tip, I'd be like, I can't wait to hear about their Jesus. Man, he must be great. No, none of us would do that, right? We would all be like, no, gross. I, if this, if you are not only a Christian, you're a pastor, and this is how you tip, I don't want anything to do with your God. 
just ask anyone who's ever been a waiter or a waitress, what's the worst day of the week to be a waiter or waitress? Sundays, because the Christians go to lunch and they're grumpy. Um, complaints go up, tips go down. One waitress online lamented, I guarantee you, if you see your table praying before the meal, you can mentally subtract a third from your tip. That's terrible. That shouldn't be. That's awful. One of the most powerful tools we have to share about grace is to be generous in our lives. Our words won't convince the skeptical world that God has been generous with us and wants to be generous with some of that. Unless we are generous. Only our practical generosity will convince them of that. One of the biggest obstacles that people have in encountering Jesus is Christians who don't reflect the generosity of their God. Justin Lee, an author and speaker, said this, Christians have often become our own worst enemies. In many communities, our reputation is that of uncompassionate culture warriors. We're quick to shout about gays or abortion or political candidates, but we're slow to show grace. We're slow to show mercy in our everyday lives. And these acts of ungrace by Christians have far more power to damage Christianity's reputation and influence than any attack launched at the church from the outside. The Christian idea of grace is really unique. It's what, one of the things that sets our religion, our faith, apart. We don't earn God's favor. It's freely and generously given, and its free, generous goodness makes us good. It is not our reward for being good. We've all caused chaos with the destructive things that we've said and done and thought, but God doesn't hold that against us. He doesn't give us what our acts of chaos deserve. He gives us Jesus. When we realize how generous God has been with us, it naturally makes us more generous with others. The more we scrounge and claw to get what we think we deserve, the less we become a person of love, the less content we will be in our hearts. And really, the secret of contentment is the realization that life is a gift, not a right. Everything you have isn't earned. It's been a gift. There are people who have worked just as hard as you, who are just as smart as you, and don't have as much as you. What you have is a gift, not something you've earned. You don't have to desperately hold on to what you have because it was freely given by a generous God who doesn't run out of grace or favor towards you. Just think about that statement for a minute. You don't have to desperately hold on to the good things you have because the generous God who gave them to you never runs out of grace or favor towards you. Generous people have less desire for more because they find their fulfillment and their meaning and their value uh, and their relationships outside of the acquisition of possessions. They've learned to find joy in what they already possess, and that gives them the freedom to give away the rest. In other words, they find true contentment, and contentment naturally leads us to be more generous which leads to even greater contentment, which leads to even more generosity. And researchers have identified this, uh, this tendency that when you're content, you're generous. When you're generous, you're content, and it builds and builds and builds. They call this the generosity spiral. And studies have shown that people who are generous also tend to have better health. Felipe Tobler, an associate professor of neuroeconomics and neuroscience at the University of Zurich, um, has been leading research that indicates that spending money on others can be as effective at lowering blood pressure as medicine or exercise. People needed blood pressure medicine, and instead he encouraged them to be generous, and it lowered their blood pressure. That's like, that's incredible. 
Moreover, he said, there's a positive association between helping others and life expectancy. The more generous people had less stress and as a result tended to live longer in the study. So it's not just spiritually good for you, not just emotionally good for you, it's physically good. Generosity is essential not just for contentment, it's essential to have a good life. If you take everything else from this series, you listen to the weeks before this, you listen to the weeks after this, and you say, I love those because Alex didn't touch on my money, and they were great, and I'm going to take everything from them, but I'm going to ignore this one because he's talking about money, and I hate it, and I wish he wasn't talking about this. You will miss out on so much because generosity is essential to become a person of love. Contentment and generosity feed each other because people of love are always generous. To have the capacity to love and love well, you cannot be in bondage to anything. And generosity is the expression of freedom. As you're not bound by the things that you have, you can give them away. And Jesus made it very clear. He said, everybody... Everybody in this room, everybody out there, everybody in the world is either serving God or money. You can't serve both. And I'm like, can't I serve God but just kind of have money as like a side thing? And he's like, no, it's black or white. It's either or. There's no loophole. Jesus said either your, your God is God or your God is money. And there are a bunch of people sitting in churches all over their country who may be singing songs about Jesus and reading stories about Jesus and listening to messages about Jesus, but they are worshiping money with their lives every day that ends in Y. In Matthew 6, 24, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. Either you hate one and you love the other, or you're devoted to the one and you despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Money is a cruel master who will never let us be content. Free yourself of him by holding your money loosely. Contentment lies at the end of giving more, not getting more. Ruling your money, not being ruled by it. Now, throughout my 15 years in ministry in Tennessee and up here, I occasionally come across someone who says, hey, I'm generous with my time and with my talents and with my toys, but I don't give my money. My money's mine. Generosity, though, cannot be compartmentalized. You can be gracious with your time and your toys, and that's good. But until you're generous with your money, you remain in bondage. You are either generous everywhere or you aren't generous. And money wants to rule us. It wants to take over our lives. It wants to be our master. So it will always be the hardest place for us to be generous. It's always easier to share your stuff, share your time, than it is to share your money. Because it's the hardest place for us to be generous, it is always the most important place for us to be generous as a result. And the only way to break its control over you is to give it away, to show it that it does not hold as much value as it wants over you. When we release the control over our money, money actually releases its control over us, freeing us to better enjoy what we already have. And when we're generous with our money, it makes being generous in every other category of your lives easier because it's the hardest thing to be generous with. When you're generous with that, you get generous with everything else. Timothy Keller says, here's a key way to tell if money has you in bondage. You know that money no longer has a hold on you when you can love the rich and not despise the poor. Now, I think right now I'm in a place where when I see someone who's in poverty or someone who's poor, I can respect them. When I see the homeless man, I say, 
this is a person who has inherent worth and I have respect for them. Um, when I see someone who has a really small home or they're really struggling, they're working a bunch of jobs to get by, I'm not like, well, poverty's your fault, you know, get over it. I'm like, I, I feel for them, I have respect for them. I say they're working hard, they're struggling, everything they do they've worked hard for, and I can respect them. But you know what I struggle with? Loving the rich. Um, I work here at the Mainline Art Center, and the Mainline is full of a lot of really mean people, rich, pompous people who have inherited wealth from generations of people being wealthy, so they've never worked for it, and they just walk in and they see me as their servant. I've had people here at the Art Center ask me to move a table one inch. I'm like, why? What's wrong with it there? It's not in the right spot. Move it, servant boy. And I'm like, what? You know, like, what are you saying? I've had people who, in this very studio that we're in this morning, they said, could you close these blinds? I'm like, they are closed. They're like, no, turn that thing to close them. I'm like, you can't do that? They're like, no, we're used to our servants and butlers doing that. And I'm like, okay, okay. It's hard for me to love someone who uses their wealth like that, who just assumes that everyone should be their servant. And what that tells me else we have is greed, and greed can only be defeated by rampant generosity. Greed says, I haven't got what I deserve, so I need to hold on to everything I can. Generosity says, nothing I have was earned, so I can give it away as easily as I received it. Greed blocks the flow of God's love through me into the world. Generosity opens the tap of God's love through me into the world. See, people are either stewards of God's money or they're hostages of their money. Which are you? Which am I? And you might think, as I wrote this, I thought, I'm a steward, and I'm a really generous one. I'm doing okay here. I'm really good. I'm okay. And some of you might be thinking that too. You're like, you know what? I'm really generous, and I'm being a really good steward of my money. Um, we have to be careful, though. One of the least generous people I ever met, you don't know him. Darby knows who I'm talking about. Um, one of the least generous people I've ever met repeatedly told people he was the most generous person he knew. You ever know somebody like that? They're not generous at all, but they talk about being generous all the time. If you went out to eat with him, somehow he always stuck you with the bill, but then talked about how generous he was. You know, if he could, uh, like, rob you blind when he came over, taking stuff from your house, you're like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm so generous, I'm going to take these things from you. And you're like, this, this is crazy. <laughs> Sometimes people are self deceptive. A donations development manager for a nonprofit building clean drinking wells in third world countries once said in an interview, all these millionaires think they are generous because they can afford to give more than the normal person. What I have to show them is that in most cases, in comparison, they're giving a much lower percentage of their wealth than a normal person does. New research published in Nature Communications indicates that people tend to recall being more generous than they actually were. The findings suggest that memory plays a role in warding off threats to people's moral self-image. Your brain is trying to protect you and make you feel like you're better than you actually are. Thanks, brain. You're actually not as good as your brain makes you remember being. The authors of the study called this phenomenon motivated misremembering. Your brain wants you to feel moral and good, and so misremembers how generous you actually were. The main takeaway the study said, Ryan Carlson from Yale University said was, is that acting in ways that violate our moral standards can shape how we remember those actions. We find that people who behave selfishly 
tend to misremember their actions in a way that makes them appear more generous than they actually were. And we think this memory bias could help people maintain the belief that they are moral when they actually act selfishly. All that to say, I am not as generous as I think I am. And this might hurt, but you're not as generous as you think you are. Now, you don't have to say this out loud, but if you can just mentally assent this in your mind, as I mentally assent this out loud, I am not as content as I want to be because I'm not as generous as I think I am. You know, a bigger, now, that statement right there, if we were in a different church, maybe with a, you know, a bigger building and I wanted a uh, big building project to uh, launch next month, I would say that statement and then I would go right into, now we're going to pass a plate and we're going to raise money for the next building project. Um, churches have exploited statements like that and connived people into giving away their entire life savings. I was reading about a lady whose husband passed away and uh, she, her husband left her a nice, um, life insurance policy check and the church was like you need to trust God not that money You need to give all 200,000 of that to the church right now And so she was like I gotta have faith I gotta trust God and she wrote the check and now she was struggling and I, I was online reading these people's horror stories of like how they've been manipulated by uh, Calls for generosity and, and it broke my heart like it broke my heart that a church conned her and as a result she was suffering I'm not suggesting that you write some giant check. That's not what the point of this message at all. I think most life change, real soul transformation, starts small, spreads slowly, and ultimately permeates thoroughly. It's much better for you to start something small and say, hey, how can I grow this each year? How can I do more? How can I uh, develop this? I'm not trying to manipulate you. This series is not about me like, ha ha, man, I'm gonna, I'm gonna really get them. I've been wanting to say this for a long, that's not, uh, if it was me, I would just never talk about money. I hate it. But unfortunately, it's an important part of our lives. This series is really about me trying to find meaning and purpose in midlife. And all the data, both secular and spiritual authors agree, we are not as generous as we think we are. We are not as content as we want to be because we're not as generous as we think we are. You may not like it. I don't like it. You may not like me saying it, but it's true. One out of four of Jesus' messages were about money. Roughly 25% of what Jesus talked about had to do with money. Think about that. That would be like me giving a talk like this once a month. You'd be looking for a new church. Heck, I'd be looking for a new church. I don't want to give a talk like this once a month. I hate these talks. Jesus seems to think that what we do with our money, and as a result, what our money does to us, is essential to becoming a disciple, a student of how he lived and loved. And so we're talking about this because we want to be content. We're talking about this because we want to become people of love, not because I have some agenda, not because I'm trying to manipulate you, not because I'm like passively, aggressively trying to say something. I don't know who gives. I don't know who doesn't give. This is just about me looking for contentment, and I think you want that too. The Apostle Paul too realized the human tendency to talk about being generous while wrestling to follow through. In 2 Corinthians 9, verses 5 through 11, this is what he says. I thought it necessary to urge um, the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift that you had promised so that it will be ready as a generous gift and not as a grudgingly given gift. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will reap generously. 
Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly, not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it's written, they have freely scattered their gifts to their poor, and their righteousness endures forever. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generos generosity will, will result in thanksgiving to God. Now, boy, have I seen these verses manipulated by churches. Um, especially churches who might lean a little bit more toward preaching the prosperity gospel. Remember last week we talked about Ignatius, and Ignatius said wealth, health, and status were obstacles to becoming people of love. Uh, churches that lean closer to the prosperity gospel say wealth, health, and status are God's will for your life. They're not obstacles. They're what, what God wants. There's only one problem with that. Most people who listen to that message don't have wealth, health, or status. And uh, so churches and online ministries and TV personalities usually say, like, you could have wealth, health, and status if you just gave me more. If you write a big check to my ministry right now, you will have wealth, health, and status. All you got to do is give more. The reality of your need to be generous is being manipulated so that you can give people more money to fund their lavish lifestyles, jets, and flashy cars. Um, I think that's a misuse of these verses. So what's actually happening in these verses? The church in Corinth said, hey, we're going to give a big donation to help the struggling churches. And Paul saw how much money they said they were going to give. And Paul's like, they said that to be impressive, not because they were actually going to give that. And he was afraid they were going to chicken out when it actually came time to pay. We never do that, right? We never say, oh, I'm going to be super generous. And then the day comes and you're like, I don't want to do that. Um, we never talk more about being generous than we actually are, right? Generosity speaks for itself. Most people who want to tell me how generous they are usually aren't. They want to appear generous without having to be generous. Generous people just are. Um, Darby's mother was up this week, and um, what a generous person. She's just an incredibly generous person, and she does not have a lot. She's a retired Atlanta school teacher. Like, she does not have a lot of money, um, but she's just very generous with it. She just is a generous person. Um, whereas sometimes there are people who talk about being generous, but they want to attach strings to their generosity, or they are generous to get something, or they don't see their generosity as a gift. They see it as a purchase to gain control over someone or to gather influence or favor. In verse 6, Paul references the biblical idea of sowing and reaping. And boy, has this verse been weaponized sometimes in churches to coerce people into giving. They stuff, say stuff like, you can't outgive God. And they imply that if you don't tithe 10% of your income, somehow God uh, won't give you money or health or status. And that if you gave 10%, then you'd have all your dreams come true. That's not the biblical principle of sowing and reaping. <coughs> the biblical principle of sowing and reaping is this. You sow seeds and you root reap the fruit of those seeds. If you sow generosity, you reap contentment. If you sow greed, you reap anxiety, angst, and apathy. And Paul's saying, listen, you have a limited amount of time on this planet. Sow good things that are going to have a good harvest in the future. What are you doing today that's going to benefit tomorrow? Paul says the stuff you really want to harvest in life sits on the other side of giving away your money generously. 
So you say, Alex, how much should we give? Well, the Old Testament commanded Israelites to give the first 10% of what they made to the temple. This was called the tithe or the tenth. Tithe just means tenth. As well as donations above and beyond this to the poor. Um, Darby and I, where we are in our life, we've decided we give 10% of our income to Horizon. Then we set aside additional money each month to be spontaneously generous with people we encounter, to buy people meals, to just hang out with people. We also set aside money to support friends who serve as missionaries overseas. If you're like, oh my gosh, Alex, 10% of my income, we'd be destitute giving away 10% of our income. We didn't start there. Start small. Start at 1% or 2% and increase it a percentage every year or two. What is amazing about it is you'll be amazed at how it grows your faith and how you still have enough. Even when you're like, we're giving away too much. Like, at the end of the year, I'm like, gosh, that would have been nice to have all that extra money, all those extra thousands. But what you realize is God takes care of you and that you really didn't need as much as you thought you did. That you're living with a lot more abundance than you thought. The New Testament doesn't command a percentage amount. Like in the Old Testament, the Jewish people were commanded to give the first tenth. Um, the New Testament doesn't command a percentage amount. But Paul says you should be able to laugh about it. That's what it says here in this verse when he says you should be a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. The word is hilero uh, in Greek. And um, just like you think it means, hilarious, that's what the Greek word translates to. Um, scholars debate whether Paul wants us to think our giving is hilarious because we're so happy. We're just like, ha I'd love to give. Take more. Take it all. I don't – That some scholars think that. Others think that the word hilaro is used because the amount is so ridiculously generous that people would laugh at it. Like you write down – every once in a while, Darby and I will talk about, like, how much should we give towards this? Or this person needs something. How much do we give? And sometimes I'll write down an amount, and she'll write down an amount, and I'll look at her amount, and I'm like, that's ridiculous. We shouldn't give that. And she's usually right. It's what we should give, but it seems ridiculous at first. C.S. Lewis argued, though, that you have not really given – until what you give costs you comfort or convenience. Here's what C.S. Lewis said. I'm afraid the only safe role is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc. is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If I'm buying the same amount of board games as my friend down the street who doesn't believe there's a God, I'm not giving away enough. Um, I really didn't want to write that line. If our charities do not pinch or hamper us, C.S. Lewis says, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charity expenditure excludes them. Paul is arguing that there are two ways to look at what you have, scarcity or abundance. You can either think, I have so much, I can share it, or you can think, I have so little, I need to hoard it. Um, the median American household income is $71,000. Um, $71,000. Yeah, yeah, I said that right. Um, for the year, medium household income. That places American families in the top 4% of the richest people in the world, according to giving what we can. As an individual, you are in the top 1% of worldwide earners if you make more than $60,000 per year in your own salary. You're in the top 1% of the world. Some people love to complain about the top 1%. I certainly have at times. I'm like, those rich 1% mainliners, you know. The irony is that most of them 
are part of the most of us are part of the global top 1% income earners in the world. The medium per capita worldwide income is $3,000 per year. That means that half the households in America make more than 25 times the median worldwide income per year. Now, greed tells us to compare what we have. Generosity tells us to share what we have. Greed tells us to compare ourselves with those who have more. That's certainly what I do. Like I sit down here in Ardmore in my house and I look two blocks over and I'm like, look at, I'm not rich, look at those people. But generosity tells us to compare ourselves to those who have less. Greed will hurt your relationships. You will see rivals everywhere. You'll see people you gotta keep up with and surpass and have more of to keep at your level. Generosity will build new relationships because you don't care about status. Paul warns his student Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It's not wrong to have money. Money is a gift. It's a tool. You steward it. But the love of money leads to evil. We either love God and love people or we love money and do evil to other people. Money can't buy you what you want most out of life. But becoming a person of love like Jesus, learning contentment, that's the abundant life that money can't buy. That's what all of us are craving and long and working and striving for. Now, I know for some of you, this message might have been triggering. You were like, oh, man, I've had too many pastors stand up and work my emotions for 45 minutes in order to get more money out of you. I'm not expecting, like, that basket better be full out there. When I, and that's, that's not what I'm saying. Please don't feel that way. And I'm sorry if it triggered you or brought up bad emotions from past church experiences. Um, I'm not doing this so that I can get a bigger raise in next year's budget or so that we can build a new building. We don't even have an old building, let alone need a new building, right? I, I, I'm saying all this because I genuine, genuinely want to help you and help myself um, find contentment. That's what I want. I'm, I'm turning 40, and I'm feeling that restlessness and that angst, and I don't want to waste my life. I don't want to spend it like just getting more stuff or just spinning my wheels doing things that don't matter. What I really want is I want to become a person of love, a person that when you're around, you're like, I sense God's love in him and through him. And I want to be a person who's content, who's not comparing and contrasting or always like working towards him. Like, I've got to get that next thing and just be like, be in the moment and be okay and say, I have so much and it's so good and I can share it because it was freely given. That's why I'm saying this. And it's inescapable. Contentment lies on the path of generosity. So we have to talk about this. As much as I wanted to bend this series and just not talk about this, you can't talk about this. You can't talk about contentment without talking about generosity. Paul ends his warning to Timothy, his warning about money, by saying the love of money is the reason that some people have wandered away from the faith and they've pierced their life with many sorrows. That's what he says in 1 Timothy 6.10. Some people have lost their faith because they love money. And some people's lives are full of sorrows, not because God has sent a bunch of sorrow their way or they've made a lot of bad decisions. It's because they love money, and that path doesn't lead to contentment. Choose contentment. Choose generosity. Reject greed. Greed can kill your faith and fill your life with sorrow. When generosity fills your life with contentment, it makes you into a person so four reflections as we end. I just want you to think about these this week. Pray these. 
um, pray over these this week. First of all, will you pray and ask Jesus to give you eyes to see where you can be generous this week? And I'll tell you, if you do this, he will show you a place. So if you're like, I don't want to give anything, then maybe don't pray it. Because every time I pray it, he shows me places where I can be generous. I hear about someone, or I find someone at my work, or I just there's opportunities all around us. Most of the time, my eyes are closed and my ears are stopped up, so I don't have to think about being generous. But if you open your eyes and you invite Jesus to show you opportunities, he'll show you places to be generous. Um, second one, think about this. If you don't give... Start small, grow slowly, until giving permeates your entire life. The hardest amount to give is the first amount. Giving gets easier the more you do it. The hardest thing is to just start. So start small, grow slowly. If you say, Alex, you're just manipulating me into giving to the church, I'm not going to. Fine, give to a different church. Give to a different organization. Generosity is key. I don't care if it comes here. I mean, I love when it does. We need it to survive, so thank you. But if you're saying, Alex, this was all a manipulation, give somewhere. It doesn't have to be here. Number three, do you despise the poor? Do you hate the rich? Do you respect the poor? Do you love the rich? If you can't say, think about like the most obnoxious rich person you know. And say, do I love them? Can I show love towards them? Think about the poorest, most destitute person you know. And like, do I respect them? If the answer is, you know what, I'm not ready to love that person yet, or I'm not ready to respect that person yet, money probably still has a hold on your heart. And think about that. Wrestle with that. Admit that to God. Start thinking about how can I be more generous so that I can break the hold money has on me. And finally, I want you to just sit quietly this week. It can be this afternoon or sometime this week. It can be in the morning, even whenever's right for you. And I just want you to sit quietly for a few minutes and don't even pray yet. Just sit quietly because I found that when I sit quietly, what wells up in me is the deepest desires of my heart. And some of them are good and some of them are bad. And that's usually where it reveals what has mastered your life. When you sit in stillness and quiet and solitude, your mind begins playing over the things you deepest desire and the things that you want and want to achieve. And instead of chasing those away, just let those come and then admit them to God. What do you really want? Status, applause, acclaim. I talked about last week, like I wanted people to know my name and respect me and be impressed by me. And those things come up. I usually I keep those choked down and I lie to myself about them. We have that right motivated misremembering. But when you sit quietly, you come face to face with yourself and what you want. And in that moment, see what has put has mastery in your life and just admit that to God and say, God, I want you to be my only master. If money has mastered me, if status, if the desire for wealth or health or whatever has mastered me, I I want you to be my only master. So sit quietly and confess that this week. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are grateful that you have been so generous with us because of the choices that we have made, what we deserved was destruction. But instead, you sent us Jesus. You gave us your best when we deserved your worst. And God, so often I give people my worst when they deserve my best. Sometimes I give you my worst when you deserve my best. And God, sometimes I'm so worried about making sure I have what I want that I'm not that concerned about being generous enough to make sure that other people have what they need. And God, forgive me, sometimes I just get busy. And honestly, I'm so busy, I ignore people 
not just going to like write a big check and be destitute, but we're going to wisely choose to hold our money loosely so that it doesn't have a tight hold around our necks. God, help us to daily remember your generosity towards us, that you showed us grace. You didn't give us what we deserved. You gave us what we needed. And God, help us to be a generous people. Yes, with our time and with our talent and with our toys, but also with our treasures. given out of my excess. I haven't given out of what would actually